Welcome to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. C.F.W. Walther was a parish pastor, later professor and first president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He was also the first president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. These sermons were preached from 1840 to 1870, predominantly in congregations of the St. Louis area. Unfortunately, we do not know the specific dates and locations of most of these sermons as they have been lost to time. These sermons were originally preached and published in German and translated by Donald Heck. They're available in two volumes from Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. Thank you for listening. The 21st Sunday after Trinity, John 4, 46 to 54. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Dear friends in Christ Jesus, perhaps the chief reason why the doctrine of salvation through faith alone is so offensive is because of a false idea of faith and its works. One such false idea is that they suppose that according to Holy Scripture, one is saved because of his faith. Therefore, they think, does God consider a person better because he believes everything which is in the Bible? Is faith a meritorious work as love, gentleness, humility, chastity, truthfulness, and other Christian virtues? And they are correct, my friends. If the Holy Scriptures would teach that faith is the cause of his salvation, we would be surprised. If no virtue can merit heaven, naturally, one cannot merit heaven because of faith. This offense rests on a misunderstanding. If one reads the Holy Scriptures, one will not find a single passage which teaches that a person is saved because of his faith, or that faith is the cause of salvation. No. The Bible, the Old and the New Testament, does not teach that man is saved because of, but through faith. It declares that the end of faith is salvation, but never that faith is the cause of salvation. The Holy Scriptures really say that absolutely no work, no virtue, no merit or worthiness can save man, that Christ alone has done this work. Christ alone has merited everything. Christ alone has prepared the marriage feast of eternal life, and that man can be justified alone by grace. But because man should share all this by grace, he must accept it. If he wants to enjoy and receive the benefits of it, he must seize it and thus make it his own, and that means he must believe it. Hence, according to Holy Scriptures, faith is nothing else but the hand whereby man lays hold of this salvation which has been earned by Christ. The vessel wherein he gathers up the gifts of grace, the key by which he unlocks the heavenly treasure deposited for him, with his faith, man therefore merits heaven as little as the beggar merits the gifts given to him, for which he stretches out his hand. You see from this, only he can take offense at the doctrine that faith saves, who already is offended that a person must receive everything from God without his merit or worthiness, out of pure grace and mercy. 
To be saved through faith actually means nothing else than to be saved without merit by grace. And to be lost because of unbelief actually means nothing else than to be lost because a person does not accept the salvation which was offered him. That faith does not save because it is a good work, but only because it receives the salvation given to him, can be proven from the fact that even the faith of a believer is never perfect but always retain certain blemishes and defects. A Christian dare not build his salvation on his faith, but rather on Christ. Yes, whoever relies on his faith certainly has never come to the true faith. With all his apparent devotion, he is just as self-righteous as the unbeliever who wishes to be saved through his virtue and good works. It is therefore highly important that we learn to know the blemishes and defects in the faith of a true believer. An instructive example is presented in today's gospel. John 4, 46 to 54. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them at what time, at what hour, when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So far our text. My friends, This gospel presents a man in whom we see that a person can have true faith and still have retained many vestiges of unbelief in his heart. Let me therefore speak to you today on the failings and frailties in the faith of a true believer. I will show you wherein these failings and frailties consist and how a believer should let himself be freed from them. The nobleman of our gospel, the official from Capernaum, undoubtedly had a living faith in Christ. Otherwise, he would have not turned to him, asking him for help when his son was deathly sick. How the official could have come to such faith is easily established. He lived in Capernaum, Christ's second home during his public ministry. There he was in the habit of returning from all his journeys. Here the official might have often heard Christ's doctrine, his power to do miracles, and his continued willingness to help and thus come to a living confidence in Christ. When his son became deathly sick and he heard that Christ had just come back from Judea to Cana, he set out to find him. Though this proves that a living faith in Christ already glimmered, it also proves that his faith still suffered from manifold failings and frailties. We find three proofs in our text. First of all, we are told that the official had expressly desired of Christ to come down and heal his son. The official supposed that Christ had to go to Capernaum, personally appear at the sickbed, lay his hand upon the sick child, speak certain words, and the like. 
That Christ could help from a distance through his mere will and word seemed impossible. We are also told that Christ had immediately said to the official, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. From this follows that the official was not strong in his faith. He considered Christ the Messiah, but in his heart he secretly set up the condition that he would first see whether Christ would do the desired miracle. He thought, if he does this, nothing will stop me from believing in him. If he does not do it, then I know what to think of him. Another point is mentioned to show how imperfect the faith that the official still was. When the Lord, when the Lord did not immediately give a definite answer and delayed a little, the anxious father restlessly cried out, Sir, come down before my child dies. He thought that if his child should die in the meantime, Christ could no longer help. His faith had not yet risen to the height of believing that Christ would also awaken his son from the dead. We see from all this that the faith of the official was still very imperfect and subject to not a few failings and frailties. Its chief failing was that the official did not cling simply to the word of Christ. He still wanted to have certain real experiences of Christ's gracious help first, something tangible and visible for his faith. These blemishes found in the faith of the official are found even today in the faith of many Christians. The official wanted Christ to come into his house if he was to firmly believe. So, many Christians want to believe that God is gracious to them only if he immediately hears their prayers causes everything to prosper, blesses them with bodily blessings, with health, with fortune, with business success, and the like. On the other hand, when God leads them a completely different way, if God hides himself from them and seems to fight against them, if their many prayers seem to be unheard, if God visits them with sickness, poverty, and failure of all their undertakings, if he lets all manner of misfortune come upon them, then they do not stand firm. They lose all confidence in their state of grace. They suppose that God is angry with them, and they lose hope. The official did not want to believe firmly until he saw signs and wonders. Many Christians even today want to see first and then believe. They place the certainty of their state of grace on a joyful and sweet feeling of God's friendliness which they experience personally. On the other hand, if they no longer taste God's goodness, the staff upon which they relied is broken. They suppose either that they never had the Savior or that they had lost him. In short, if God does not show visible, tangible signs and wonders of his grace, if they do not immediately see how much God's word has accomplished in them, they will not believe. The official believed that Christ could heal his deathly sick son, but not that he could awaken him again from the dead. Many Christians have great confidence in God's grace, assistance, help, and deliverance if, in their opinion, they are not too bad off, if they can still help themselves. They joyfully believe that he will not leave them nor forsake them as long as they still have good friends who will and can help them, or if they can still help themselves. On the other hand, when all their hopes are blasted, their great confidence is suddenly gone. They believe that their sins are forgiven when they see that God has given them another heart and that their sins do not accuse them. On the other hand, if they learn the power of sin in them, 
Yet they see with terror that they are still poor, miserable, worthless sinners. They do not try to believe that their sins are forgiven. Then they suppose that as certainly as they see their sins, so certainly their sins are still unforgiven in God's eyes. If they are healthy, they at times speak as if they would gladly leave this world. Yes, they they yearn for judgment day. They honestly mean that. But when death really knocks, when eternity with its judgment approaches, their desire for dying, for the most part, quickly ends, and they surrender their weapons of faith to death with its terrors. My friends, these are the great blemishes and defects in the faith of a true believer, especially the beginner. These, I say, are great blemishes, for faith has to do with invisible future things. He ought not wish to see, grasp, feel, and find. As we read in Hebrews 11, faith is the complete confidence in that which one hopes for and has no doubt in the things one does not see. True faith is a real trust in God's word and promise. Therefore, it must not ask for more than this, what is written. And it must rely on this, even if everything which he sees, feels, experiences, contradicts the word. Even if one word of God seems to contradict another, he still must not let anything be taken from either. In short, true faith must, even if abandoned, believe in God's gracious presence, even if he feels sins, he must believe in his justification. Even if he finds the wrath of God, he must believe in his state of grace. Even in the jaws of death, he must believe in eternal life. Abraham showed such a faith. He joyfully left his friends and fatherland and went into a land which he did not know, which the Lord had promised him. Yes, even when God demanded that he should sacrifice his only son, he was ready to do even this. He hoped, as Paul writes, that God would awaken him again from the dead. If a person's faith does not reach that height, he does not have it in its full power, flower, and fruit. We are told not only of the failings and frailties of the official, but also how he was freed from them. Let us in the second place learn how a Christian must let himself be freed from the blemishes and defects of his faith. The first thing which we see is the love with which Christ sought to correct him. Of course, Christ did not approve of the defects. He reprimanded them. He did not reject his imperfect faith, but sought to purify its gold from the dross. And what did the Lord do in order to achieve this? When the official became greatly alarmed at the delay of the Lord, Christ said to him, Go, your son will live. And behold, this word now entered the official's heart, and showed its divine power. Scarcely had Christ said it, that that took place which the evangelist said. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. The official's doubts quickly disappeared. He was now so certain that he would meet his son healthy that the whole world could not have dissuaded him. He thought, whenever his heart wanted to doubt, no, no, what this man said is true. A person can rely on it. He certainly would keep his promise. It is impossible for this man to be a liar. Though the official was firm in his faith, an even greater confirmation awaited him. About the seventh hour, that is, according to our figuring of time, about one o'clock, the Lord had told him that his son lives. 
On the next day, as he returned home and neared Capernaum, behold, his servant came to meet him with the joyful message that his son was recovering. And when he asked for the hour, when he began to improve, he received the answer, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Joyfully, he now recognized that the miracle of the sudden convalescence had taken place in Capernaum in the very second in which Christ had said in Cana, your son will live. And so we read, and he himself believed and all his household. The little spark of faith with which he had journeyed to Cana had become a great fire. When, at his return, he saw his faith most gloriously confirmed, it burst into bright flames. He now preached Christ to his own household and did not rest until he had led all to Christ. Here you see how even now every novice in the Christian faith can be increasingly freed from the failings and frailties of his faith. The first and most necessary thing is that a Christian diligently hears and meditates on God's Word, especially the Gospel with its wonderful promises, applies them to himself, and lets them enter his heart. Sad to say, there are many who gladly hear the sweet gospel, rejoice over it, and praise it, but never really receive it into their hearts as a word which God has spoken to them. Whoever hears the gospel in such a way can hear it a thousand years and deem it true, yet he will either be weak in the faith or fall back into total unbelief. He who wishes to become stronger in the faith must boldly apply the promises which God has given to all repentant sinners to himself, comfort himself with them, and build upon them as upon an immovable rock. If he reads that God loved the whole world, he must appropriate that to himself and say, Well then, God has loved me also. If he reads that Christ died for the redemption of all, he must appropriate this to himself and say, Well then. He has died also for my redemption. If he reads that Christ is the Savior, Reconciler, Advocate, and Mediator of all men, he must appropriate that to himself and say, Well then, Christ is also my Savior, my Reconciler, my Advocate, my Mediator. But a Christian must not think, How dare I believe this, since I am so sinful, since I still feel nothing in me but my accusing conscience. I must first wait until I feel different. Now, the official did not wait until he could see Christ's word fulfilled. So even now, whenever Christian hears the gospel, he must not wait a minute to depend on it, but give God the honor and say, I, a poor sinner, have not merited grace and salvation, but only wrath and punishment. But because the gospel is the word of God and Christ, who cannot lie, I will not let my unworthiness turn it into a lie. I will believe it until the hour comes when I will see what I have believed and enjoy what I have hoped for. The official not only believed Christ's word and then left, he also paid attention afterwards how Christ confirmed and fulfilled his word. Each novice in the Christian faith and all weak in the faith must not only hold firmly to the word of the gospel, despite their heart in the whole world, but must then also notice how Christ confirms his word in them. When a sinner begins to cling to Christ's word, he often, for sometimes, detects no change in himself. At first, it often seems as though Christ's word has no comfort or power. But if he continues to cling faithfully to it, 
He will learn that in Christ's word lies buried all light, all life, all power, and all comfort. He will experience that everything which the word promises actually takes place, and that it gives rest to the soul, peace of conscience, comfort in trouble and death, and strength and power for a victorious struggle against the world, sin, and Satan. After these experiences, the Christian must notice that he becomes increasingly certain of his faith, even stronger, ever more confident, ever more joyful and happy. He will then, as the official, not be able to stop from telling others what great things the Lord has done to him. He will try to bring others, uh, above all his own family, to Christ, have them grow in the faith, persevere until the end, and finally receive the end of faith, which is the salvation of their souls. You have heard not only about the blemishes and defects of the faith of a true believer, but also how the believer should let himself be freed from them. Now, first of all, you who have understood none of this, to whom this is a strange, unknown thing, who have experienced absolutely nothing of the weakness of your faith, and suppose that you have been firm in it from your youth up, and have never erred or become weak, believe me, you do not know what faith is. You are still not in the faith. The real way of faith is that it is attacked. Sometimes it is strong, sometimes it is weak. Whoever merely imagines that he has faith supposes that he is always strong. You who have up till now lived in this delusion, ponder a bit. First pray, asking God to let you recognize that you still do not have the true faith. And when you have known this, ask him again to work in you through his Holy Spirit. Of a truth, Luther says, pray God that he may work faith in you, Otherwise, you will surely remain forever without faith, regardless of what you may think or do. And you who feel the weakness and manifold blemishes of your faith, take the example of the official for your model and follow him. Your faith will become stronger like his did. Finally, you who through God's grace are strong in the faith, you take the official for your example in the time when he had become strong. Become preachers of faith to your households, to your friends and neighbors, and to all with whom the Lord brings together. Happy will you be if you kindle faith in others. For thus says the word of God, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James 5. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. You've been listening to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. These sermons are available in two volumes as a part of Walther's Works, Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. We thank you for tuning in, and we pray that God's Word has and will continue to be a great blessing in your life.